Well, hey, Anthem Church, Bert Alcorn here. Welcome to the teaching portion of Anthem Online. So delighted that you are here with us today. Today we are doing uh, something that I love doing. It's one of my absolute favorite things, and it's opening up a new teaching series uh, for us. And this teaching series is going to take us through the fall and into next year a little bit. And we're going to be in the book of First Peter. So if you have a Bible, uh, go run and grab it. Open it up to the book of First Peter. If you have a Bible app on your phone or whatever, open that up. We we actually started preparing and prepping this teaching series, man, over about a year ago. And when we were working through it and studying it and, and praying and thinking about how this is going to be effective for our church, I was so overwhelmed by how potent and powerful and profound and relevant this book is to our lives here today. And then in March, COVID hit. So months later, after we started preparing on this, the COVID season is upon us. And First Peter has taken on new layers of meaning and relevance for us that it's been incredibly exciting. And so I've been really excited to start this book with you guys today. And you know, just the other day, I was chatting with a few friends and we were just kind of talking about the time and place we find ourselves in. And we were commenting that this feels a bit like a moment that we see in the Old Testament. And it's this moment where the Israelite nation is in slavery in Egypt for something like 400 years. God rescues them out miraculously. And they have these big milestone moments with Pharaoh and the plagues and the Red Sea and leading them out. And they find themselves kind of at the base of Mount Sinai out in the desert. And what happens? What, what, what questions do God's people start asking? Why can't we go back? I don't like the desert out here. I don't like the unknown. I don't like where we might be going. Can't we just go back to Egypt? And it's this interesting moment where the Israelite people have just seen the profound and mighty hand of God rescuing from literal slavery. And they're out in the desert for a few weeks and they start going, ah, oh, we should go back. Life was better in Egypt. Life was better in slavery than the unknown of where God is taking us. And I wonder if that same posture is characterizing Christians today, standing in the crux of where we were and where God is taking us. And I wonder if some of us are saying, I want to go back. I want to go back to Egypt back to slavery, back to the old way we used to do things in our old life, not, I want to go where God is taking us. Now, I think some of that has to do with the circumstances that we find ourselves in, that life is genuinely hard right now. Hard for many of us, especially if there have been family members or friends affected by COVID, especially if you've had employment, jobs, careers impacted by COVID. This is a genuinely hard season, and it is easy to think, wouldn't it just be better if we could go back? Now, the reason I bring that up is one of the prevailing themes of the book of First Peter is this theme of resilience. That that no matter what life throws at you, we don't just stand back or, or cower or become weaker, but we actually get stronger. That, that in the midst of adversity and difficulty and for First Peter's audience, persecution, it actually grew their faith. They actually would thrive more and, and flourish more. 
And where we find ourselves standing in the crux between something that was and whatever God might be doing, what is your posture? Are you wanting to go back to Egypt? Are you wanting to go back to the the hurried pace of our old lives or church characterized by a once a week event that we attended? Or are you up for the adventure that God is taking us on? Are, Are you saying, yeah, this is unknown. It's a little bit risky. I don't know how this feels right now, but God, I know you're in this and I know you're taking us somewhere. Where we find ourselves is a profound decision moment for followers of Jesus. Will we fight for our rights? Will we fight to get things back to the way they were? Will we look inside the church of Jesus Christ and say, they're not practicing faith the way I would, so they're not real Christians? Are we going to divide? Are we going to infight? Or with fresh eyes, empowered by the Holy Spirit, look to see, I think this is where God might be taking us. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I want to go to the promised lands. I believe the series we are embarking on today First Peter will help us profoundly interpret the times, live well in the times that we, we live in, and, and be ready and help ready us for where God is taking us by building a resilience in us in the midst of suffering, by building a faithfulness in us in the midst of a culturally coercive empire, by building vibrancy in the spirit in us in a time where it is so easy to depend on ourselves or depend on things or whatever. I believe this book will be profound for us. So here we are embarking on a new journey today, a new teaching series. We are kicking off the book of First Peter. And it's a letter that will help us live well, wisely, and wholly in the time and place that we find ourselves in, in our exile. And it's what the entire theme of the book of First Peter is all about, is how to live well, wisely, and wholly in our exile, in a land that is not our land, in a home that is not our ultimate home. And the, Peter, and the people that Peter was writing to were scattered all throughout the empire and around the world. Right? They were scattered from their little clustered group in Jerusalem all throughout Asia Minor and the empire. And Peter is writing to them because they don't have power. They're being persecuted. They're being ostracized. They're struggling to live the way of Jesus in their time and their place. And Peter is writing to encourage them, to bring hope to them, and to train them up to be faithful and resilient disciples of Christ. First Peter gives persecuted Christians a powerful reminder of the hope that we have in the midst of sufferings. Peter offers hope to Christians in any context and in any place and helps guide us with practical instruction on living a life consistent with the way of Jesus. He's writing into a world that is characterized by the rapid spread of the gospel in the early stages of Christian persecution, both in the Roman and the Jewish world. And Christians are trying to maintain hope and stay faithful. And he writes to encourage them. And he writes to encourage them to be faithful, to be resilient, and to suffer well. The next 20 some odd weeks that we're gonna be in the book of 1 Peter 
are going to take us down a road of being really stirred to walk in the fullness of our identity in Christ, no matter the circumstances, expressing the hope that we actually have. I think it's going to be so good. I've been so excited to start this series with you today, and I hope you are excited as well. So if you have your Bible, go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Man, what a start already. I mean, I have chills already. This will be a profound and powerful letter for us. We're just going to tackle two verses today. We're going to open up the book, do a little bit of context, help understand what Peter is trying to accomplish and what we can expect to receive from God in this season. So let's start with the who. Let's start with Peter himself. Peter's story is actually a familiar one, maybe to many of us. He gets a ton of airtime in the New Testament. He's a fisherman by trade who was called by Jesus to leave his nets and come follow him. And we have this snapshot in this moment in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, where Jesus tells Peter, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now that's a play on words because Peter is a fisherman, but it's also a way of Jesus telling Peter, follow me and I will make you like me. I will make you the way I am. And Peter immediately left his nets and his life would never be the same again. And there's a lot of debate uh, about how old Peter was when Jesus called him and was following him. A really conservative understanding is that Peter was a teenager, something like 15, 16, 17, 18 years old when he was following Jesus, when he left his nets and followed Jesus. Now, he would have been in Hebrew school and would have had like a cursory understanding of the scriptures. But since he was a fisherman and not training to be a rabbi, his schooling stopped at a certain point. And so Peter's life with Jesus, we see this this profound leadership development on Jesus' part to Peter. Some sense of leadership among the other apostles. Peter is often the one asking follow-up questions to Jesus' parables, sometimes really silly and stupid questions, but questions nonetheless, right? He's singled out in his answer to Jesus' question about Christ uh, in Matthew chapter 16. He's invited with James and John to come up to the top of the mountain to witness Jesus interacting with the Father. Peter takes out a sword, and when Jesus is is getting arrested, he takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of someone in the mob that came to arrest Jesus. We see the Peter uh, story where he denies Jesus three times, and then he witnesses the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter runs to the empty tomb along with John, although John makes sure to let us know that he didn't run as fast as John was running, but he runs to the empty tomb and Jesus spends time with Peter on the shores of Galilee after the resurrection, before his ascension, and he calls Peter to feed his sheep. Peter in the book of Acts receives the Holy Spirit and leads a revival on the day of Pentecost. And Peter leads the first church in Jerusalem, teaching people how to preach and proclaim the gospel that Jesus is 
the Christ. Peter is this profound character in Scripture. And this is his letter to Christians that have been scattered, or what he calls the elect exiles. That's who he's writing to. Because there's this moment that happens in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1, uh, 2, uh, it's all about kind of the early beginnings of the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit and the proclaiming the Holy Spirit. And we have these snapshots like the end of Acts 2 and the end of Acts 5 where they had everything in common and they're day by day preaching and proclaiming Jesus as the Christ from house to house and in the temple courts. And we have these stories of generosity and early church leadership and the gospel on the move. And what happens in Acts chapter 7 is Stephen, one of the very first deacons in the churches, is preaching the gospel and giving a pretty scathing rebuke to the Jewish leaders for rejecting Jesus. And because of that, at the end of Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen is being stoned for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. It's the first martyr after Jesus for the sake of of Jesus. And then at the very beginning of Acts chapter 8, we have this snapshot. Saul, before he is Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. They were scattered. So there's a persecution for the church in Jerusalem, which is where all the Christians were. We're in this one city. It's like all the Christians of all time were in Los Angeles. And then a great persecution happens, and they're scattered. They're scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So everyone bolts, but the apostles are staying back. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. As they scattered, they didn't scatter in cowardice or in fear. They didn't, they didn't like say, oh, this Jesus thing was a bad idea. We're going to zip our lips and then maybe go back to our Jewish roots. No, no, no. They scattered and went about preaching the word. And this is how the church blows up and expands. They're all around the area. And this scattering is what's known as the dysphoria. The dysphoria is the scattering of disciples throughout all the regions of the world, particularly the Roman Empire, and then it just keeps going and going. So when Peter writes that this letter is to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, he's writing to the dysphoria, the believers who are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire and all the churches that have been started as a result of this scattering and this preaching of the gospel. Now, the language is just not, not just for Peter's immediate audience, though. New Testament scholar and professor Karen Jobes says this, most modern interpreters understand the address to Peter's readers as foreigners to be a metaphor that describes the Christian's relationship to the world. By virtue of faith in Christ, home is heaven, and Christians, therefore, are just passing through this world as foreigners. The concept of being exiles or foreigners establishes our primary and secondary relationships and identities. 
So our primary relationship and identity is wrapped up in God. That's where our primary relationship is. He's our identity. He is our home. The body of Christ, that's our people. That's where our citizenship is. The book of Philippians says our citizenship is in heaven with Christ. Now, the place we live is our secondary relationship. Whether it's America, Southern California in the 21st century, China in the 1800s, Germany in the 1500s, or the early church in the first century. No matter the time, no matter the place, or the, no matter what is happening in culture, no matter the cultural coercion or persuasion, we as Christians are free to live differently, think differently, and speak differently than the world we are in because this world is not our home. That's what it means to be in exile. We are just, in the language of that New Testament scholar, Karen Jobes, passing through. If our lives truly are a mist, like the hymn says, a vapor, then the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of God's glory and grace. In other words, when we maintain an eternal perspective, it allows us to engage this world not as our only hope here, but but actually as missionaries, as ambassadors, rather than being caught up in the fears and the functions of this world. Yet Peter has this amazing ability to hone in and focus attention on Jesus and help believers find common ground while they're here on this world and, and find a fullness of hope by looking to Jesus. This whole letter is about living in exile and enduring hardship, suffering, and persecution because our ultimate hope is not found in this world. It is hidden with Christ, his saving work, and his true life. They are in exile. They are under attack. And he's helping them see how the gospel of Jesus Christ compels them to live differently. Now, now, while I would argue Christians in America are not facing persecution, not at all, I'm not denying that things are hard. There isn't suffering happening in our world. And the same um, calling, the same encouragement, the same exhortation from Peter applies to us to live differently. Peter has a lot to say about becoming resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. He knows that the world is right in front of us, all of its demands. It's our lived and felt experience. And we know what is right in front of us. So how how do we merge these two realities that the world's right in front of us, the life we are living and our forever eternal home? How do we do that? How do we live on earth as citizens of heaven? And I believe it's what we're about to walk through. And it's how Peter opens his letter. Before he does anything, he establishes how we can live on earth as citizens of heaven. How we can live in this world, but not of this world, right? How we can have our identity with God so we can live, think, speak, act differently here on earth. And that begins in verse two with a hope that is based in eternity. And not only a hope that is based on eternity, he's gonna write the basis of our hope is actually 
uh, on the foundation of the Trinity, God himself. And so Peter writes, the basis of our hope as he's opening the letter is threefold. So the basis of our hope is threefold. The first foundation for our hope is the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreknowledge of God the Father. The second is the sanctification of the Spirit. And the third is obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. That is the basis for our hope. These are based on the Trinity. It's based on God's very nature, identity, character, and relationship with us. And it's based in eternity, not here on this earth. And this is how Peter just opens up the letter. He's writing the letter. Dear fellow brothers and sisters, I want to first and foremost tell you where your hope is because it's not here. And if it's here, you are screwed, totally. Your hope is in the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Your hope is set in eternity. So you can endure anything here and now. You don't need to whine and cry about the way things that aren't or the things the way they're, they're not what you want them to be. They're not the way they used to be because your hope is somewhere else. You don't need to whine and complain that life is hard because your hope is somewhere else. You can endure and persevere through real hardship and suffering because your hope is somewhere else. Anthem Church, where is your hope? Because if it's in your spouse, if it's in your house, if it's with your kids, your job, your school, your income, you are asking for trouble because all of those things will let you down. I guarantee it. All of them will let you down. But if our hope is set on Jesus, the sprinkling of his blood, on the sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the knowledge, the foreknowledge of God the Father, they will not let you down. This beautiful Trinitarian picture of God at the beginning of 1 Peter is so expansive and so encouraging. So I want to unpack the case that Peter is building for our hope, and that is our project today. And he starts with the foreknowledge of God the Father. There is nothing that is happening now or has ever happened that took place outside of the purview and knowledge of God the Father. He sees it, he knows it, he understands it, and he's with us in the midst of this. Nothing in your life has ever been a surprise to God. Nothing. And this is how Peter starts. That God knows you. He's with you. He sees everything that has happened, every awful thing, every amazing thing, everything that was done in secret and in private and everything that has shaped your life. He sees it, he knows it, and he's with you in the midst of all of it. The sanctification of the Spirit. Peter knows that the Spirit is at work refining us and actively building up the body of Christ. And this picture of sanctification or maturity or growth, whatever you want to call it, is one that we have talked about actually really often. And it's usually couched in the language of how we change, how we become more like Jesus. That's what this idea of sanctification is all about. In fact, just uh, about a week or so ago, we re-released a bunch of episodes on the Anthem Daily podcast, unpacking this biblical paradigm for how we change and how we can embrace and partner with the Holy Spirit and the work he's doing in and through us. 
But sanctification by the Holy Spirit is all about making you become more like Jesus through the course of our lives. Romans 8 and Galatians 5 are beautiful texts that both talked about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And the picture from both of those chapters in the New Testament is that God leads us to becoming like Jesus Christ. It is our predestined purpose to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He's actively speaking to us now and producing in us the fruit of Jesus' character. And as we submit to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, he minimizes the dominance of the flesh in our lives and our decision-making and increases his own role in our thinking and our doing. And that is how we become more like Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, Paul goes as far to say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, stop. Just think about this line for a moment. If the Spirit is rhetorical, because the Spirit, this is the same Spirit, it's a rhetorical question. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul's saying, you know that thing that raised Jesus from the dead? That same thing is in you, empowering you to live life. The sanctification of the Spirit is all about right living, of becoming more like Jesus, but it's also about the power to even do that in this life. The Spirit gives life to our immortal bodies. He refines our brokenness, and it's that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that is leading you to become more like Jesus today. What, how beautiful it is that we don't have to become like Jesus in our own power, right? That's the job of the Holy Spirit, and he is doing that in you yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Peter wants his readers to know that you are not without the ability right now to live the life God has called you to today. You're not missing a thing. You have everything you need for life and godliness. And he says this specifically at the start of his second letter that he writes. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You have everything for life and godliness and to live this life. You have everything you need to do everything God has asked you to do today already. So Peter starts off his letter with the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. He's giving hope, he's giving security, and he's giving a way forward for people who could lose their sense of a way forward, who, who might drift off the mission that Jesus has given them. And then the third basis of hope he gives us in verse two is obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Peter closes off his Trinitarian exploration with obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. 
still in the category of trying to set us up for how we can have hope and live well, wisely, and holy in our exile, how to become resilient, how to become faithful, how to become uh, live a vibrant life in the Spirit, how we can live faithfully in a home that is not our home. Peter points us to obedience to Jesus Christ as the way we do that. Obedience to Jesus Christ. I want you to remember some of Jesus' last words that he gives his disciples. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, or another word for observe is obey, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded to you. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey me. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Peter was with Jesus when Jesus said all this stuff. He's with the disciples that are with him. Peter's getting firsthand the necessity of obedience to Jesus to our life here on earth. And he knows that obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling with his blood the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for you and me, these are the access points to Jesus' presence. Peter's commission here is not telling them to obey or be sprinkled by the blood as a command, but rather establishing the basis for why he can say the things he's going to say, why we can have hope, why why we can actually live the way he calls us to live because Jesus' sacrifice for you. The basis of our hope is we have a savior, a great high priest who has led the way in humility and faithfulness and he accomplished the work needing to propitiate the wrath of God for you and for me in that we can walk forward in whatever trials, sufferings and fires and storms of life that you and I might face. And he finishes this opening paragraph and sets the tone for the entire letter with this one line, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. How beautiful is that? Now, if we're not careful, that, that's a throwaway line. That's the equivalent of sincerely or with love. No, no, no. This is a profoundly theological statement Peter is making. The meaning of that word multiplied has both the voice and character of God stamped all over it, finding its roots in the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where God tells Adam to increase, multiply, and fill the earth. A multiplication story is in the very identity and character of God. He doesn't do anything small. God doesn't do addition. He does multiplication. And this one line sets the course for the entire letter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is how we can be exiles. This is how we can be resilient disciples. Grace and peace multiplied to you. That's how we can be faithful in the midst of an intensely coercive culture and intense pressure from all around us. That's how we can live a vibrant life in the spirit. When we're experiencing an increase in both grace and peace, we can withstand all kinds of suffering. We can withstand any storm in life. And we can actually like grow in those moments 
thrive in those moments, come out stronger from those moments. We can actually build each other up and be unified. We can live as a family of God in this broken world. So what if, what if, what if in this season you weren't running out the clock on the coronavirus? You weren't complaining that things aren't the way they used to be, they should be, you want them to be? What if we weren't so concerned with fighting for our personal liberties? What if we won't concern for our own comfort, convenience, and well-being? And what if instead, what if we actually partnered with God in the work he wants to do in and through us? What if, what if we come out of this season stronger, more devoted to Christ, healthier in our relationship with God and with others, with a vibrant life in the Spirit? What if we came out flourishing? What if we were resilient, not just bouncing back, but bouncing back stronger? What if we partnered with God in the work he wants to do in and through us by becoming resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. Now, I don't want to be too grandiose. I think we could change the world. I think if Christians weren't so concerned about their comfort, convenience, and rights, and were more concerned with the gospel of Jesus Christ, becoming resilient, being faithful to him, and living a vibrant life in the spirit, I believe we could change the world. And I believe that is a compelling picture for those who do not know Jesus. Let me tell you what's not a compelling picture. Whining that we can't meet in a building on Sunday morning. That's not compelling. If you have friends that know Jesus... They don't care about that. And the more time we spend talking about why we can't do that, the more they're going, what's your problem? What's your deal? Let me tell you what is a compelling picture for those who don't know Jesus. A resiliency that perseveres through suffering. A life that has hope that's not here on earth. A a vibrancy that transcends understanding or circumstances. A faithfulness to the God who has saved us that we are willing to look, think, and act differently in this world because we know this world isn't it. That there's hope, there's something more. And that something more isn't just for then, it's for now too. That, friends, that's a compelling picture of the gospel. And that's my prayer for each one of you. Jesus, we invite you into this space to utterly and totally wreck us. Continue hacking away at the idols that our hearts have built up, that our culture has built up, that the church has built up. Would you give us a urgency and a passion for you to be in your presence, to be with you, to become like you, to do the things that you did. Help us to become resilient and faithful and live a vibrant life. Not so that we can be happy or comfortable or safe, but we can pursue you no matter the circumstance. 
And we can come out of any trial, any storm, stronger and flourishing because you are there with us in the fire. So Holy Spirit, thank you for your sanctifying work in our life. Father God, thank you for your sovereign knowledge and connection to us. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice on the cross to bring us new life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.